All right, welcome to Full Disclosure here on the WMAY Morning News Feed. Every Wednesday morning, we check in with David Greising, President and CEO of the Better Government Association, to get the updates on what's happening in state government and how uh, we need to keep an eye on it to make sure it's working for all of our benefit. David, as always, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Jim. Great to be with you. Thank you. We're through the Easter break. Lawmakers are back to work, and I'm using air quotes around the word work because it still doesn't seem like a whole lot is getting done, particularly on something that for a couple of years now, uh, almost everybody has said is or should be a top priority at the state house, but very little is happening with the question of ethics. Yes, uh, this has to be one of the great disappointments so far of recent years in the state legislature. When you think about it, we've lost a longtime Speaker of the House uh, due to an ethics probe, uh, although he has not been charged with any crime, Mike the, Mike Madigan, the former Speaker. Uh, we saw Martin, Martin Sandoval, uh, head of the Transportation Committee, uh, before he died, uh, was uh, ensnared in this in a corruption probe. And yet, uh, we're seeing very little activity. The most, it appears, that is developing is the possibility of a six-month ban on let, uh, let former legislators becoming uh, lobbyists. And that, uh, while it would be progress, because right now they can uh, become lobbyists the day after they leave the legislature, a six-month ban is just inadequate. Uh, 36 states have a one-year ban, and a number of them, including Florida, have a two-year ban. Uh, the BGA has called for a two-year ban, along with other groups believing in good government. And uh, it's just highly disappointing that we're not seeing more action uh, along these lines. David, walk us through this a little bit as to why this uh, this ban on the so-called revolving door is so important. What happens when lawmakers are able to immediately transition from being a legislator to being a lobbyist? Well, for one thing, uh, they don't just uh, walk out and have a job ready the next day without having had any prior conversations. Uh, they typically, we find, have had some sort of conversation, informally so, and legally, we would hope, uh, beforehand. Uh, it's not as if they necessarily trade votes for in order to get jobs, but they might, uh, they might not be quite as vigilant in terms of their oversight responsibilities or their treatment of prospective uh, uh, employers uh, while serving. It just has a corrosive, the, the idea that uh, lawmakers are, are mainly thinking about their next job a lot of times while they're in the legislature is corrosive to uh, representative government. Uh, and uh, as we talk to people in the legislature, we do find they very much have their minds on what comes next. And uh, one issue that has some legitimacy that's been raised is that there's an equity issue here, uh, that people who come from minority communities in particular, uh, for them, uh, this job is an important one and their next one is important to them. And they don't have as many options as other people might have. And so that issue has been raised and it's one that needs to be uh, taken seriously because uh, uh, it, it's you know, there is there is some basis to it. Uh, but overall, uh, we've seen a very uh, uh, kind of a negative outcome when people just walk out of the legislature and begin lobbying for a client that whose business they might have been overseeing just days earlier while a member of the uh, of the body. Care to venture any guesses as to the likelihood that lawmakers will pass something that will dr dramatically limit their employment opportunities once they leave office? 
<laughs> Sadly, when you look at the history of reform in the state legislature, we've seen bouts of ethics reform previously. The most recent one was under Governor Quinn, and, and he declared victory when, in fact, it was not a victory uh, for the people of Illinois. And I'm afraid, based on the way that this is going, uh, that we're—, we're uh, we've got a long uphill fight between now and the end of the session. Let's put it that way, Jim, uh, as regards any sort of sweeping ethics reform in the legislature this time around. It is full disclosure every Wednesday morning here with the Better Government Association. David Greising is the president and CEO. Uh, another huge issue that is looming. Uh, there are, wow, so many hearings, so many meetings, so many discussions, but nothing tangible we can point to yet as far as progress on the issue of legislative redistricting. Absolutely. There are uh, hearings all across the state, dozens of them from both Senate and House redistricting committees, and yet uh, very little sign that anything substantive is going to happen with regard to redistricting reform. The latest fight is over uh, an, a proposal put forward by a group of Republican lawmakers uh, to institute a... Um, bipartisan panel to draw the maps. Uh, that panel uh, would then take its work to the state legislature, which by then, assuming it, pass it misses uh, its June 30th deadline for a new map, would go to a similar uh, panel made, made up of lawmakers, also bipartisan in nature. Uh, but Lisa Hernandez, the, the Democratic chair of the House Redistricting Committee, uh, has called this proposal uh, a plan, quote, to elect more right-wing candidates. So the effort to draw up a map that fairly represents the state of Illinois and, and gives uh, residents of our state representative government has run into the same sort of bipartisan bickering that too much, uh, too much of what happens in the legislature uh, runs afoul of. And uh, it, we, um, we just have every reason to believe that the efforts to really get a good map this time around, uh, as with ethics, are facing some really strong pushback. You know, it's bipartisan bickering. It's also a heaping helping of hypocrisy. There's uh, no end to the number of Democratic politicians in this state who have given lip service to the notion of fair maps, but don't want to let go of their partisan advantage in drawing those maps. Republicans are all about an independent process now, and yet uh, they have fought fiercely to try to have enough legislative clout to be able to draw the maps on their own. And it stands to reason they would eagerly do so if that were a an available option for them. Uh, so everybody really it does have their own vested political interests in all of this. And yet the, what should be the predominant interest, that of the voters of this state to have a, a truly representative government, that's the interest that always seems to be at the bottom of the pile. Yeah. And, and let's not overlook the fact that you, while you are 100 percent right that this is about a partisan issue as we see it now, uh, it also is about protecting incumbency. These maps are drawn to protect people on both parties who have positions in the legislature. Uh, and they um, uh, that seems to be the primary issue, um, you know, somewhere around half of the state of the seats in the legislature have no opposition whatsoever. Uh, and so this protects Republicans as well as Democrats, although, of course, the Illinois map um, heavily favors Democrats now because so many incumbents are with supermajorities in both houses 
of the legislature. So many incumbents are uh, are Democrats. We want to talk a little uh, inside political baseball now, but it, but it is important. It does have ramifications here when uh, the governor of the state and the mayor of its largest city seem to be at odds. That has uh, some significant potential repercussions in terms of legislation and policy and politics, uh, and that is the situation that seems to be unfolding between Governor J.B. Pritzker and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Right. Nobody has declared war or even declared that they can't get along or can't line up their agendas. But we've not often seen when a governor and mayor of the same party uh, are in office so much uh, disunity between them. Uh, mayor Rahm Emanuel, for example, uh, had a working relationship both with Governor Quinn and then his successor, Governor Rauner. Uh, it doesn't appear that Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker uh, have much of a working relationship at all, or if they do, it's not a very effective one because they keep winding up on different sides of various issues. Uh, Governor Pritzker has signed now the firefighter pension increase for uh, Chicago firefighters that Mayor Lightfoot says is going to cost the city of Chicago between $18 million and $30 million per year. She strenuously opposed that. Uh, he also... Um, uh, it is a uh, backer of the uh, uh, bill by backed by the Chicago Teachers Union to give new rights to uh, the CTU to bargain over class size and length of school year and other factors. The CTU is really uh, Lori Lightfoot's arch nemesis. And so to see Governor Pritzker back both of those bills is quite, quite something. Um, and uh, there's also... Uh, you know, working its way through the legislature as we speak is a bill to or a couple of bills to uh, have an elected school board, which Lori Lightfoot backed that idea when she was running for mayor. But she clearly has backed away from it. Uh, all of Chicago is waiting to hear from her whether uh, she has an alternative to the bill that seems to be gaining traction and um, uh, very well could pass and very almost certainly would be signed by Governor Pritzker, because this is a measure that is backed by the CTU, and Governor Pritzker seems to be a very strong backer of that union. You know, it's interesting, because as you note, uh, you don't usually see this uh, this amount of, of open uh, disagreement uh, on key issues between a, a governor and a Chicago mayor of the same party. But historically, we know there's always been a little bit of an effort uh, on in both parties to uh, to try to establish which one is the, the dominant animal in the barnyard, you know, and uh, a lot of Chicago mayors believe they're the ones really in charge of the state, uh, and a lot of governors have to try to, to show that they're the ones calling the shots, and it looks like that's still at play here, too. Well, that could well be in play, and one thing we are seeing is that uh, Lori Lightfoot has just not got a very effective intergovernmental operations team, which is responsible on a day-to-day -day basis for uh, working with the legislature in Springfield as well as uh, with the governor. Obviously, the gov gubernatorial relationship between the, that person and the city, uh, the mayor of the city of Chicago, is a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And you're right, there, there often has been that sort of testing of each other and their political clout in the state. But I don't think we're even to that point at this at this point. There just seems to be, uh, politically speaking, at least very little of a relationship. Even on some COVID matters, there's been some disagreement, open disagreement between those two. And, and it's uh, uh, the city of Chicago is not being very well served right now uh, because of Mayor Lightfoot's ineffectiveness. 
both with the governor and with the legislature. Although this pandemic has been a, a huge disruption uh, and a real economic hit for a lot of people, uh, the recovery effort does provide some opportunities. And one of those is in the area of education where billions of dollars, billions with a B, are coming to Illinois uh, to help students uh, recover what they have lost over the course of this long pandemic year. Uh, and that really gives us a chance to, in some ways, really reshape education in the state, David. Well, $7 billion is coming from the American Rescue Plan. Uh, and uh, it's so much money that uh, Governor Pritzker, I, I think, uh, adeptly uh, has put out sort of a, a user's manual for school districts because the school districts themselves would receive these payments directly and they need to make applications that, in, that enable them to optimize the opportunity for them to get this kind of resources. So this guidebook uh, lays out all kinds of tactics, uh, including um, extending the school day, recruiting uh, more pre-kindergarten and kindergarten students to get them into the education pipeline at the earliest possible moment, uh, adding teaching staff even, as well as in-school counselors. These are all the among many ideas that are in this uh, almost 200-page manual. Um, uh, you know, there are some concerns in the education reform community about uh, programs that are uh, are not sustainable. And while this is a lot of money, uh, it, the, the concern is, for example, when you add new staff, once the federal money runs out, how does that school district then afford that staff, or do they have to lay them off, and then do students go from having uh, su supports and then having supports removed? So this is going to be something that is closely followed. Uh, the schools are really struggling right now, not just because of COVID, but also because the state has in place what is called an evidence-based funding formula by which the state had, was committed to uh, increase spending by about $350 million per year. And last year, and again in his current budget, uh, Governor Pritzker has not funded that. So the evidence-based funding formula is two years behind catching up. And, um, and so that's another issue that the schools are dealing with. Uh, and, and certainly, as you noted, a bit of that double-edged sword on, on the funding. I know for our local school district, we just talked to our superintendent last night, uh, and they're a little overwhelmed by all of this. As you noted, it's about a 200-page document of different uh, ways they can utilize this money. They're trying to get through this year, get a summer school program together, and, and they haven't really even been able to, to quite start to wrap their minds around uh, how to deploy this money in the most effective way in the fall uh, to try to help students in the best way possible possible. So a lot of work ahead in that arena as well. David, before we let you go, we wanted to get your take on a story we've been following closely here. It's one of our most important local institutions, and they have had no end to the upheaval at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, starting back before the pandemic when their executive director was fired. And then, of course, uh, the, the institution had to shut down for most of last year because of the pandemic. Uh, and, and the upheaval is continuing in these last couple of days at the Presidential Library and Museum. Well, no doubt. We've seen the chair of the board, Ray LaHood, the former transportation secretary of the U.S., had to resign uh, Monday because of uh, he acknowledged to federal authorities that he had received a $50,000 loan while serving the, in the Obama administration from a Nigerian-Lebanese businessman. Uh, so he had to resign. Uh, meanwhile, there's a bickering been going on for quite some time be between the museum itself and the museum's foundation, which is supposed to raise money for the museum while also providing 
articles that are put on display. And of course, the foundation uh, earned some infamy a few years back when they acquired a Lincoln stovepipe hat that, in fact, is probably not a Lincoln stovepipe hat, but apparently there is no uh, uh, kind of persuasive evidence that the president actually wore that hat, even though the museum at one point had valued it at around $6.5 million. So there's a real vacuum at the top. There's a new executive director starting in June. Uh, her name's Christina Shutt. She uh, has, has uh, a pretty good museum pedigree. And let's hope that when she comes in, she's able to bring some stability and right the ship and improve programming, et cetera. That's such an important institution to Springfield and to the whole state of Illinois and really the nation more broadly. It's a shame that it's been such a drama nonstop at that museum for years now. And with that, we are out of time. We'll do this again next Wednesday morning. Uh, David Greising, uh, how do people reach you and the Better Government Association the rest of the time? I'm at dgreising at bettergov.org. That's D-G-R-E-I-S-I-N-G at bettergov.org. And our website is bettergov.org. And here each Wednesday morning on the WMAY Morning News Feed. David, thank you. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Jim. Bye-bye.